Welcome to Talking in a Library, a platform for scholars to share the projects they're pursuing using the rich collections at America's oldest cultural institution, the Library Company of Philadelphia. Good morning, patrons. This is Will Fenton, the Director of Scholarly Innovation at the Library Company. I'm here with Dr. Z Zara Annis Hanslin, Associate Professor of History and Art History at the University of Delaware. A self-professed historian with a thing for things, Annis Hanslin specializes in 18th century material culture. Today, we're going to discuss her first book, Portrait of a Woman in Silk, Hidden Histories of the British Atlantic, which was recently awarded the Library Company's first biennial book prize. Welcome to the library, Zara. Thank you. It's always a pleasure to be here. So, Zara, what are we looking at? What we're looking at today is one of my favorite pages from the wonderful antiquarian book put together by John Fanning Watson, who was a Philadelphian uh, descended from the sort of great and good of the colonial families of Philadelphia. And he took it upon himself to chronicle as much of early Philadelphia, the sort of days gone by, you feel a real sense of nostalgia from his words mm. when you're reading his, uh, his text, um, took it upon himself to chronicle the sort of bygone and swiftly fading but very important colonial history that saturates Philadelphia. Mm. And what we're looking at today is one of his pages that deals specifically with the history of women in colonial Philadelphia and Pennsylvania, and it includes fascinating bits of fabric that hmm. he has attached um, as images to illustrate his words and as examples of some of the things that 19th century antiquarians like Watson appreciated the most, which were the material relics of the past. Hmm. And it looks like this is a, an image of a, of a branch, is that right? I'm trying to get a sense of the fabric that's been pasted into this page. Yes, so there are three samples of fabric, actually, and at one time there were four, and the fourth one seems to be missing, which we mm. come back to at some point. <laughs> um, it's a good harbinger of the mysteries of historical detective work. <laughs> Always something missing in the archives, no matter how great the archives are. Um, but what is present on this page at the top is a beautiful sample of what was an embroidered silk, and you see the sort of... Um, sort of meandering um, flower on a leaf and it's sort of a serpentine curve and it's at one point would have been vibrantly beautiful with sort of greens and pinks and some metallic thread but at this point it's faded um, and it belonged to Mary Dyer allegedly who was a famous Quaker who was actually executed in Boston hmm. for being a Quaker um, and who was, who was a really um, a sort of uh, martyr for uh, the Quaker religion to a lot of a lot of people's point of view, um, and Watson saw her not only as someone who was admirable for having died for her faith, but someone who um, was sort of indicative of what he sees as uh, a religious fervor that is sadly disappearing in the 19th century. Hmm. Some things never change, right? There's always someone worrying about religion disappearing in America. Um, but this gown is, is interesting because it represents a gown that Mary Dyer would have worn before she took up being a Quaker um, because of the richness of the metallics. Sort of sumptuousness, um, and she, of course, is representative of. Um, although she herself wasn't part of of this founding generation of Quakers in Philadelphia, is representative of the fact that people like um, Edward Shippen, who's the first mayor under the 1701 Charter, 
um, was a Quaker who left Boston hmm. specifically because of the religious persecution that Quakers faced in that town and found a safe haven in Philadelphia. Now, I certainly welcome any opportunity to talk Quaker history, <laughs> Philadelphia history, and, 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 and certainly to, to sort of dig into Watson's annals. Um, but I'm curious to know, why are we looking at this particular object? What is its um, uh, significance for your project? So why we're looking at this particular object are the things that you don't notice so much with Mary Dyer's sumptuous, um, beautiful embroidered piece staring you at the face at the top. And those are the two tiny fabrics that are down, tucked away at the bottom of the page. Um, one can be no more than, I'd say, an inch by an inch, right? Mm-hmm. And the other one is about an inch and a half by an inch and a half. Mm-hmm. And they're both very plain. One is uh, what Watson calls a buff-colored silk, what we would read as a sort of pale yellow. And the other is um, is a blue that has been uh, faded over time, but you can still see through the threads that peek out that it once was a, a much more vibrant blue. But the one on the left, the sort of, you know, neutral colored, very pale yellow, buff colored silk, as Watson calls it, is really why we're here, um, looking at this together. And that's because this is a remnant of over 60 yards of silk made by Susanna Wright of Pennsylvania. Hmm. And this was made in the 1770s, and it was part of Susanna Wright's ongoing efforts to engage in sericulture, or the growing of silk. Hmm. using silkworms and then getting cocoons made into thread from the silkworms, making that into raw silk, and then having that silk woven in colonial Pennsylvania. And this was a project that was near and dear, not just to Susanna Wright's heart, but to a number of really important men connected to the library company, including someone that most people, I'm sure, have heard of, Benjamin Franklin. Mm, Go figure. (laughs) (laughs) He's everywhere. (laughs) So... As, a, as I were looking at this, this industry of Susan Wright, it raises a question for me. It seems to me that this object underscores one of the, the real key insights of your project, which is that commodities such as silk were both consumed and produced by women. What can a thing, like a piece of silk, tell us about women's participation in 19th century political economy that you know a textual artifact like a diary might not? It's a really great question. So I think just on this one page, right, you see an example of silk standing in for women's simultaneous wearing and making of it, Hmm. right? So you see a piece of what Mary Dyer once wore, and you see a piece of what Susanna Wright made. And I think that that beautifully encapsulates how women in the 18th century Atlantic world were deeply involved, not just in wearing silk, but in making silk. And not just in silk, but when it came to a lot of other objects and commodities, that shape uh, trade and the growth of capitalism in the Atlantic world in the 18th century, which we tend to think of as a very male-dominated story. Mm -hmm. And I think that the reason that these textile sources are so important is not just the textiles were crucial in terms of women playing a key role in consumption as well as production, which certainly they were, but also because textiles as a material artifact represent a way to find women's participation in these histories that archival documents don't often show us. Hmm. Well, yeah, and I mean, I'm I'm, I'm just looking at this page. I mean, I would have overlooked uh, those two patches of fabric at the bottom. I mean, my eye was, yeah, and I mean, like, so so there's a particular literacy that you've developed, and I guess that that raises a question for me. How is reading an object different from reading uh, a text? 
That's another excellent question. And I think sometimes people who don't do material culture studies are wary of trying mm-hmm. to analyze objects because they think of it as a very foreign endeavor in terms of research. But I like to use two analogies. One is that if you are someone who starts off researching 17th century history, the first time you go into the archives and you read 17th century documents, you really need to get a paleography to mm-hmm. understand that, right? Even though if you're working in an English document, for example, and you are a native English speaker, it's still going to look very strange to you, the 17th century document. And for that matter, a lot of 18th century documents are difficult to read as well. But you sort of train your eye to get to know the ins and outs of handwriting in the 17th century or handwriting in the 18th century. And you wrap your brain around things like the fact that in a, even in a printed text, a newspaper, what looks like you know um, a crazy capital S to 21st century eyes could actually, or an F rather, could yeah. actually be a double S, right? Mm-hmm. Um, same thing with, with material culture. When you look at artifacts, you have to learn how to read them for what they are. Um, if you didn't learn how to speak French as a child, it doesn't mean that you can't learn French. It just means that you can't sit down and look at a book in French before someone teaches it to you. And the same thing with material culture. You just have to learn how to read the object. And in this case, uh, what you do is you read the textiles, in the case of Mary Dyer's uh, sample from her gown, as something that is a sumptuousness, a sort of attachment to worldly luxury that she gave up voluntarily by being a Quaker. Um, the Quakers did not um, eschew wearing silk, for example, but they would not have worn silk that was quite this um, dripping with metallic thread mm-hmm. and vibrant colors. They would have worn a silk that's much more like what Susanna Wright produced at the bottom, for example. Something that's shiny and lustrous and obviously luxurious, but is a plainer color, um, not as highly decorated. And in this case, what you can see is Susanna Wright, the handiwork that she produces, that it is this beautiful piece of silk. Um, If you look closely at it, you'll see that you can't really see the pattern of the weaving so much, the warp and the weft, it's very smooth, Mm -hmm. so it's not nubby, right? Um, And that's because the silk itself is very fine. The weaving was good too, but this means that the quality of the raw silk was, was very, was something that could be rendered smooth and shiny and lustrous. And that means that she was raising good silk. Um, it's, you know, any product that you make is, in some levels, only as good as the um, thing that it starts with, right? The quality of the raw material. And in this case, what she did was she raised her thousands of silkworms and produced really high-quality raw silk that became the thread that could come into being as this shiny fabric. Hmm. Yeah, I actually want to sort of return to some of uh, your attention to those little worms because I think that there's a real care um, and, 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 and craftsmanship to uh, your prose, which is just redolent in this text. Um, and I want to sort of give our reader a little taste of it, or our listener, I should say, in this form. <laughs> Thank you. Um, if if it won't embarrass you terribly, uh, may I read the first paragraph of your prologue? Well, since no one can see me blush when you do, sure. <laughs> but more seriously, thank you for the kind words. It's, it's very nice to be complimented on, on writing. I really appreciate that. Thank you. Listen to this. It began with a silkworm, undulating and munching on mulberry leaves. The tiny pale worm grew fat. It ate, defecated, and molted molted, defecated, and ate, shedding its skin four times as it grew. 
Its growth complete, it began to spin. For three days it spun, wrapping itself around in a cocoon, a protective, continuous, fibrous strand made of its own spit. But this cocoon, meant to protect the pupa inside as it transformed into a moth, did not serve the purpose nature intended. The insect inside never emerged, fully transformed, to beat living wings, mate, and lay eggs of its own. Instead, it met the same fate millions of silkworms had suffered for thousands of years before. It was steamed or boiled alive, killed before it could break free. The human hands that killed it gently unraveled the shroud of its cocoon into a long, thin strand of thread, cleansed the sticky gum of its spit from the strand, and twisted it together with the unraveled cocoons of other dead silkworms. The worm's cocoon had become a sturdy thread of silk. Made into the raw material for a lucrative commodity, it traveled, along with thousands and thousands of other dead silkworm's cocoons, made into thread to be transformed again. I don't know if I've read anything like that in an academic monograph. And I'm curious to know, what did your writing and editing process look like? Did you face any resistance from editors? Yeah, the writing and editing process depends so much upon um, the often, I think, too unsung heroic work of editors, right? Um, in this case, I had an editor, Christopher Rogers, at Yale University Press, who let me sort of run with it. Mm-hmm. Uh, he was he actually suggested the title Portrait of a Woman in Silk because he liked the fact that it evoked uh, Portrait of a Lady mm. and this sort of literary quality. And he really encouraged me to go ahead and do things like include a poem that my father wrote to celebrate my dissertation being done, mm. um, to include that at the beginning of the book because this book had its germination as my dissertation. And not all editors would let a historian put a poem as the start of their book. And I think I was lucky in that respect that Christopher Rogers and Yale University Press was on board with with me having that sort of literary approach. Um, I also think that this is a nod to the power of thinking deeply about things over time, the sort of what is now the the sort of popular trend is to call it slow history, right? Mm. Uh, The prologue was the very last thing that I wrote, and obviously it's the first thing that you read in the book, right? And I think that if I tried to write this prologue at the beginning, I couldn't have. It was only after writing the entire book, sort of laboring to produce it as it were, that I thought about in different ways about the labor, not just of the people, but of the other sentient beings, the silkworms involved in this process. And to me it was uh, sort of a way to unveil two things. One is that we talk about these beautiful things like silk or portrait as luxurious objects, and oftentimes historians nod to them as things that people use to illustrate their refinement or show their gentility, sort of show off their social status, right, Um, their economic worth. And that's definitely part of it. But one of the things that my book does that um, I feel most passionately about is to show the sort of ugly side of these beautiful things, Mm -hmm. that every single beautiful thing that we consider has an ugly labor history hidden within it on some level or another. And when you're talking about 18th century America, including northern colonies like Pennsylvania as well as southern colonies, 
um, history of slavery is embedded in this, for example. And in this case, to think about the fact that um, what we look at as beautiful shimmering silk is actually made from dead worm spit. Mm -hmm. And in this case, it was a sort of way to start the reader right off, sort of diving into that world of, you know, you think that you're going to look at a beautiful portrait of a woman in a silk dress, and you are, Mm -hmm. but to think deeply about the labor behind that beautiful thing that you're seeing. And in this case, um, the sort of the silkworms' lives as a way into that. That's such a good answer. Oh, thank you. So let's talk more about beginnings, because we're at the beginning now. Um, As I understand it, this project germinated during your research at the Victorian Albert and Winterthur Museums. What role does the library company play in this story? Yes, well, I always say that uh, historians should visit museums more often because museums are great sources of inspiration. Um, But I also say that historians, when they give public speaking engagements in particular, should always make a careful point to thank not just museums and curators, but archivists and librarians. Hmm. Um, Because they are the even more heroic, unsung uh, people who who enable historians to do what we do, right? Um, I'm not the only historian who gets annoyed by this sort of trend sometimes when you see people on uh, social media sites like Twitter saying, I discovered this thing in the archives, and we're like, no, we didn't discover it. Someone carefully collected that, did some, you know, conservation work on it maybe, put it in a carefully sourced archival folder, for example, and, mm-hmm. you know, documented the fact that it exists and is carefully state, um, put into this repository so it can stay safe for many researchers to look at it. So, you know, to me, thinking about um, the role that archivists and librarians play in our ability to look at something like the John Van Watson page with Susanna Wright's silk on it. Mm-hmm. is really critical. So that's the sort of general reason why the library company is, um, was important to, to this book, was just as a researcher and all the fabulous things that are here. The other reason is that the library company itself as a historical institution is important to, to the histories told in my book. Um, and interestingly, in some ways we're looking at the perfect object to talk about this because it is important both in terms of the history of people who consumed and the history of people who produced in the Atlantic world. In terms of the history of people who consumed, um, the woman who's the the sitter in the portrait of a woman in a silk dress, Anne Shippen Willing, is obviously, those people who know colonial Philadelphia history will know the Shippen and the Willing are important 18th century uh, Philadelphia names, and she's the granddaughter of Edward Shippen, the first Quaker mayor of Philadelphia. And she's married to Charles Willing, who's another mayor of Philadelphia, hmm. a very wealthy merchant, and a, uh, a very one of the very first members of the library company, um, as were her, her sons, her brothers. And what's interesting, and this gets to the sort of uh, where women are lost in traditional archives, um, we know that she and her daughters were all literate and highly educated. Um, one of her daughters, for example, was Elizabeth Willing Powell, who Benjamin Rush goes to for um, for ideas about uh, what he should do with with female education, right? So um, in this case, these are women who are highly educated and literate. So they're undoubtedly reading the books from the library company that their husbands and sons and brothers check out, but their names at this point in time are not listed among the subscribers. It's a little too early for that. Hmm. Um, and so I think that the library company as an institution is important 
in this family of consumers' lives as an entity, um, as a sort of cultural and intellectual source of knowledge for them. And I also think it's important um, in terms of the story of production that's, that's told in this book, because women like Susanna Wright are part of uh, a very large group of actually thousands of women that this book traces who are involved in making silk around the Atlantic world. Mm. And Susanna Wright, as I mentioned, um, this piece of silk was part of a production of the Silk Society, which was an American philosophical society endeavor spearheaded mm. by Benjamin Franklin, among others. And parts of silk that Susanna Wright had made actually made its way across the Atlantic to Benjamin Franklin, uh, where he sorted out what he thought of as the best samples to give as a gift to Queen Charlotte, the consort of George III. So in this case, you see um, quite literal connections um, socially, intellectually, and in terms of economic production, as well as sort of uh, you know, symbolic gifts to royalty to show American importance and loyalty, um, all connecting through the military library company. Hmm. Your um, evocation of the American Philosophical Society brings to mind you know, their sort of banner of useful knowledge. And um, certainly there was a great deal of emphasis on, on useful knowledge uh, in the early years of the library company. Uh, even now, we just had an exhibition up on cabinet making. Um, I'm curious to know if institutions like the library company supported the transmission of knowledge of other commodities, such as dressmaking. And if so, what have you found? Yeah, absolutely. That was another reason that the library company was important both as an archive and as a historical entity to this book. Uh, as an archive, there are many books that are in the original catalogs of the library company that are things such as Philip Miller's Gardner's Dictionary, hmm. which uh, was among a shipment of books sent over from London by Peter Collinson, who is a person who features in my book. Um, another Quaker who is uh, connected to Benjamin Franklin and Susanna Wright and a lot of these names I've mentioned already and he is himself a textile merchant so another example of hmm. economic importance of textiles in this world but he's also an avid botanist and he has one of the great fantastic gardens in London which is where the silk designer um, that I highlight in my book Anne Maria Garthwaite the woman silk designer undoubtedly went that was one of the places where she went to look at recently grown exotic flowers that Collinson and others had in the gardens. And so Collinson sending Philip Miller's Gardener's Dictionary to the library company is a nod to the fact that people like Benjamin Franklin and people like Charles Willing and their wives and daughters, as well as their sons, were keenly interested in botany and in cultivating exotic flowers and plants mm -hmm for medicinal as well as aesthetic reasons. Um, and so that's one example of a sort of practical knowledge book that's in the library company that plays directly into this, the histories told in my book. Another is that uh, the Reverend Samuel Perlain, um published a treatise on how to raise silkworms hmm. and make their, um, their, their spit turned into cocoon, turned into thread, into raw silk that would be profitable um, and also, as his reverend title might hint, um, has sort of musings along the way of why this is a spiritually enriching process. And the Reverend Poulain's treatise was very popular, and the library company has one of the earliest copies of it, and it's actually specifically on the 
title page said to be geared towards colonists. Hmm. So it's meant for North American colonists like Susanna Wright or Benjamin Franklin uh, to, to pick up and read so they can enhance their knowledge of silk making. And so the library company's early catalog is filled with all sorts of these books, in addition to the more sort of intellectual um, readings that you might think of. But I think that it's a really great example of the fact that uh, 18th century Americans were interested in having things in their libraries that could teach them practical as well as more erudite knowledge. Hmm. I'd like to think a little bit more about process with you. Um, one of your project's real strengths, its real innovation, is to consider the lifespan of a given object, what you call its full biography. You write, much as we need to chart the full course of a person's life from birth to death to grasp his biographical story, to better appreciate the shifting meanings of objects, we must consider the full biography of a thing, too. Talk to me a little bit about your sources. How do you trace the biography of a dress? Or not to be too cute, where do you look for the artifacts of your artifact? <laughs> Never be too cute. Artifacts of the artifact is, is, that would be a good title, actually, for a methodological book. Save it for the next one. <laughs> yeah, so if, someone, if someone out there listening wants to write a material culture methodology, there's your title. Artifacts of the artifact. <laughs> um, well, much like any historical process, it really is detective work, right? So... You start with a sort of hypothesis of what you think the story is and what you think the causes are behind the story and who you think the main characters are and their relationship. And then you start backtracking to see whether your hunches are right. Hmm. And in the case of material culture, it can sometimes be a little trickier in the sense that this piece of silk, for example, that we've been talking about, Susanna writes what we would call homespun silk in the sense that it was made in America, as they would have called it in the 18th century, um, doesn't have any writing on it. It doesn't have any marks on it. It, as you say, looks like a very plain piece of fabric, right? So in this case, we have what was written about it over a century, almost over a century later, by John Fanning Watson. Um, his words, talking about what this piece of silk is, um, but what you do with that? So first of all, you know, any good historian would say, well, you can't just take John Fanning Watson's word for it. Now, can you? No. You can't take the secondary source's word, but the primary source is what it says it is. So then you have to go and try to track the history of that artifact, right? So Susanna Wright, for example, um, she was one of the few women who both made silk but also wrote a treatise about how to make it. So she is participating in this sort of republic of letters that men like um, the Reverend Samuel Poulain and Benjamin Franklin are also part of. And silk making in this case is really her entree point into that male-dominated intellectual network. Mm -hmm. And so you can go back and look at the treatise that she wrote. And you can go back and look at her letters. And you can go back and look at um, how people describe her in turn and describe what she's doing with silk. There's this great anecdote about um, a British officer who's stationed in the colonies wanting a pair of um, silk stockings that are knitted from Susanna Wright made silk, but he's not going to wear them in America because he's going to wait to take them back to Britain where he'll put them on and show them off as a curiosity, right? <laughs> this crazy thing he picked up in the colonies. Um, and so those are things, for example, so those stockings, as far as I can ascertain, don't survive. 
but the letter about them does, and that's a really fascinating way to backtrack and to fill in some of the sort of gaps around this piece of silk. So I think the artifacts around the artifact, um, it's interesting because sometimes it leads you to more objects, mm -hmm. and sometimes it leads you to traditional archival sources. So in that sense, I guess my answer is sort of boring because it's really like general history work. Mm -hmm. um, but I think, I think where material culture frees a scholar up to go down different avenues is it almost forces you to be more curious. Because mm -hmm. if, you, if we just stopped with this, what this page says about that very innocuous looking piece of silk, that's an okay story, but it's not a great story, right? And mm -hmm. by filling in those blanks, you get a much richer history. That's great. This is um, such a, a scrupulously sculpted book, um, and yet formally it's quite different from other historical studies, at least the ones I've read recently. In your introduction, you frame your project as a sort of episodic history, um, which you say travels back and forth across time and space. Lead me into the sort of methodological weeds here. How did you structure this project? Um, what models did you consult? Yeah, weeds is the right word, actually. <laughs> because this is an example of, speaking of editing, to go back to one of your first questions, mm -hmm. uh, this is an example of, I always tell junior scholars and my graduate students to not spend too much time agonizing over a first draft or even a second draft, because once reviewers get a hold of it, they will tell mm -hmm. you things you didn't even anticipate. In my case, what uh, two of the reviewers told me um, both of whose identity I knew, so I knew that I could, I knew that I had to deeply respect their opinion given who they were. Mm. Um, both of them told me the same thing, which was that I needed to completely restructure the book as, as it was in manuscript form, which involved completely flipping things around. So now, and the reason they wanted me to do that was they wanted me to follow the, the sort of creation of the central object, which is the portrait of a woman in a silk dress, through space and time in chronological fashion. So they wanted me to start with the silk designer, because her picking up her pencil to draw the pattern is the first step in the creation of the thing. Then they wanted me to go to the weaver, because him taking her pattern and making it into silk on his loom was step two. And then they wanted me to go to step three, which was Anne Shippen Willing finding the silk and getting it made into a dress, and then step four, which was the painter painting the, the portrait. Now originally, the way I had it structured was um, sort of around the chronological focus of each person's life. So in other words, I started off with the painter because he dies the earliest or disappears the earliest. He's death is sort of a mystery. And so he was first. And then I jumped to, I think, the Weaver, because he was next. In any case, the structure was completely different, so I had to throw it all away, in a sense, hmm. and uh, restart. And so that is part of the process that, in some ways, forces you to rethink everything you're arguing, because you're no longer structuring a sort of um, building foundation stone upon stone. The stones have all been thrown onto the ground, and you have to put them back together. Mm -hmm. And so that, I think, is a really... Um, is part of being in the weeds, right? The sort of mm. process of writing that in some ways changes what you're looking at and changes not your argument, but changes the the argumentative thrust of, of your writing, so to speak. That's that's fantastic. And it sort of sparks another question for me that uh, and, and certainly not to belabor our our 
our metaphors here, but I'd like to think a little bit about the, the stones that were left behind. Um, was there any part of this story that you were unable to include with that structure that emerged? Um, have you saved anything for your next project? <laughs> yes, um, and there's always a next project, right? At least there should be. Yeah, so in the dissertation form of this, this went all the way through to the death, the last death of the collective for the, the designer, the weaver, the sitter, and the painter. And that was the sitter who's ancient and willing, who lived a very long life and did not die until 1791. She was born in 1710. So um, one of the great matriarchs of Philadelphia, not just because she gave birth to 11 children, 10 of them survived to adulthood, but because she also lived 81 years, which is, um, which is quite a feat for an 18th century woman. Um, so originally, I took this story through the Revolution and up into the years of the Early Republic. And I was talking to a very smart person who uh, is an editor, not my editor, but another editor, and this is, again, why you should talk to editors. Mm -hmm. And she had some really sound advice for me. She said, what you're writing here is a colonial history. And if you make this, if you include what happens from 1778, which was uh, the year that the Weaver dies, to 1791, then this will seem as though it's a story that is making the colonial part a sort of precursor to the early Republican history. And I thought about what she was saying, and it made more and more sense to me, because what I didn't want this book to be was a sort of teleological triumphant march toward USA. Right? Mm -hmm. So I did not want this to be a story uh, about colonists producing things, and then, lo and behold, you know, we get to Washington's first presidency. So... It struck me that telling this as a colonial history made a lot more sense and gave colonial history its due. And once I made that shift, and my book substantively ends in 1778 on purpose, right in the middle of the American Revolution, things are not resolved. There's a coda in 1791, but it's only two and a half pages mm -hmm. or something. So really, this deliberately leaves off when America is still deeply embedded in its colonial past. And one of the things that forced me to do was to pay careful attention to things like the 1720s, which a lot of historians don't pay a lot of attention to. And that decision to leave most of the revolution and certainly almost all of the early Republican story out of this iteration, um, when this turned from dissertation to book, shifted the focus of the book into very much a colonial history, but also left me a lot of really great revolutionary early Republican material to work with. Hmm. So that's what I'm working with now, moving forward in time. So I feel like you've sort of alluded to um, uh, influences you want to have on the reader just based upon the structure of this text. Is there, is there anything you want readers to see differently after working through this project? That is a really tough and excellent question. There are a couple of things. One is methodological, just the sort of, I guess celebration isn't too strong a word, celebration of what material culture can do. Um, I think most historians at this point, I say optimistically, <laughs> appreciate material culture as a form of evidence particularly for people who are not otherwise documented in archival sources because of things like illiteracy or conditions of enslavement 
um, or indigenous people whose, uh, whose traditional ways of retaining their history are oral or material. Um, I think that that's been accepted by most historians as bona fide, right? Um, but what I think is less obvious to a lot of historians is the value material culture has for people who do leave a lot of written documentation and for people who do show up in archival sources. Every single one of the four people who are the sort of central network traced in this book was literate, was educated, was financially solvent. Hmm. They should have left documentation behind, and they did, but they left scattered documentation, like a fire insurance record, or a will, or one letter talking about how to dispense of stock in England sort of a thing. Um, they don't have, they're not a sort of Charles Wilson Peel self-documenting their life richly. Um, they're not a Benjamin Franklin writing copious letters. So if you don't look at material culture, they sort of fall through the historical cracks. So I think methodologically speaking, they're a really good reminder that we need material culture for everyone, not just for people that we presume or assume didn't leave as much written documentation. And historically speaking, there are a couple of takeaways. One of the most important is the central place of women in this history of the 18th century Atlantic world, of the long 18th century Atlantic world, because this story really does start in the 17th century. Um, and the sort of idea that industries like the silk industry in England or silk production in America that we tend to think about as male-dominated were male-dominated, again, on paper, uh, because things like guilds have male-dominated memberships right. in London. And in the colonies, people like Benjamin Franklin are the people whose papers get collected more often and stuck in repositories, like the Historical Society of Pennsylvania or the Library Company of Philadelphia. And we mentioned earlier that the library company, we know that women were using these books, right? They don't always show up mm -hmm. on the membership roster in the early 18th century time period. And so I think in this case, um, a, a really big takeaway is that women are omnipresent in this world. And that although this is a world that's shaped by things like uh, legal coverture, that women have a vital and productive and really always present role in shaping the economy and the society and the culture and even the politics of what's happening in this mm. world. That would be one of the one of the major takeaways. That's great. I want to close by by shifting from the past to the present. Um, how has this project changed the way that you interpret some of the commodities in your own life? Ooh, excellent, excellent thing to ponder. So I'm, I'm a bad historian in the sense that... <laughs> I don't buy that. <laughs> well, I'm a bad historian, although, let's be honest, no one's going to want to write a biography of, of me, but if they did, I'm not leaving them much material to work with mm. because I sort of willfully destroy my own archive. Um, I, probably, I probably read too many, uh, too many letters. For example, I, I'll never forget sitting in the Massachusetts Historical Society and uh, working on my new project on the revolution and stumbling across a letter from Abigail Adams to a friend. Uh, and on the back, Abigail had written, burn after you read this. And I was thinking, oh, Abigail, my friend did you wrong. And now, you know, <laughs> now here I am and other people sitting here reading this letter you didn't want read. You know, the next day, much less this many decades, centuries later. So um, I think I'm very cognizant of that. So I do sort of work with the story of my life. Um, and I'm not a collector, which is interesting, because, mm. again, I study people who collect and study um, collections of things as a methodology. 
Although I do collect blue and white porcelain, so yes, that's a thing. <laughs> every every fellowship I go on, I try to come back with a piece of blue and white ceramic porcelain. Um, so that that is something I collect. Um, in terms of my own life and how this book shaped things, um, one is that I do think more deeply I think about the sentimentality attached to things because another takeaway from this book that I hope readers get um, is that when you're talking about, as I do very carefully, an economic history that's very important in terms of shaping um, society, politics, and culture in the Atlantic world, that I think we do commodities studies a disservice when we stop at that moment of purchase or when we stop with the economic meaning. Because something like a silk dress arguably has even more meaning when it's passed on to a family member as a gift, for example. Hmm. And so I think much more deeply about things like my grandmother's silver punch bowl and what it means that I have it and the fact that my daughter loves making Christmas punch in it. And so I will likely make sure that she gets it and she carries on the tradition. And so this book has made me think more deeply about sentimental meanings behind things that again, on their surface, look like a nice luxury, right? A silver punch bowl. But that in this case, has meaning not because it's a beautiful object to me out of a valuable material, but because it is something that reminds me of my grandmother and now my daughter will monitor her holidays moving forward. So I think that that's one way this book has made me um, think more deeply about the sort of deeply embedded meanings that objects have, which has been um, very fruitful. And finally, last but not least, to get back to the silkworms, I do think carefully about um, things like if I'm buying a uh, new couch, as I recently did. Leather's great, but do I really want to think about the dead cow that goes into that? I don't mm-hmm. know if I do. So, you know, equally thinking about the sort of hidden labor histories that we're still grappling with in mm-hmm. terms of the clothes that we wear and the things that we put in our homes and thinking about these deeply embedded, sometimes very dark histories that are within the commodities that we wear and use No, the, the, uh, the uh, takeaway that I have there is that we needed to acquire some more porcelain to entice you back into our collections. Um, thank you so much for your time, Zara. This has been such a delight. Thank you. It's been my pleasure, absolutely. And a, a big shout-out to the library company for everything it's done historically and continues to do. Thank it you. really makes all of our lives a lot better as scholars. Thanks. Thanks. Next month, I'll speak with Dr. Carla J. Mulford, professor of English at Penn State University and the founding president of the Society of Early Americanists. Carla is currently leading a seminar entitled Benjamin Franklin and Immigration, which considers how Franklin's ideas about immigrants and immigration evolved as his career moved from being a colonial leader in Philadelphia to a citizen of the world. Until next time.